Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Have the return tonight of the ellipsis. So this is a joy. So joy is the treasure But we've already talked about joy a little bit. I don't know if you remember, but when we talked about a character of nobility, we pointed out that joy was one of the fruits of the spirit, right? And that that is a gift already. So why are we talking about it again? Because there is a specific thing about joy that follows the ellipsis that is the treasure I want to talk about tonight. Not just joy in general, although that is, again, I believe a gift, a treasure. But I want to talk specifically a little bit about this other part of this. So we'll start tonight by indeed talking about joy generally. Let's just get a benchmark. And then we'll talk about what the ellipsis says. But again, I want you to really think about the fact that I think joy is tricky. We've been told that joy is something that comes for the Christian. And then all of us or many of us had the experience of becoming a Christian and then having a day that didn't feel like joy. And unfortunately, I think sometimes when that happened, we would go to people that we trusted and we would say to them what's happening and we'd get possibly one of two equally incorrect answers, I think. (laughs) We would go to somebody and they might say, well, clearly you're doing something wrong, so stop doing that and be joyful. Or we would go to somebody and they would say, the problem is joy doesn't mean what you think joy means. That what joy is has nothing to do, we, we, we hear that the stress that joy and happiness are very different. And so we would be told, joy doesn't feel like you thought it would feel. So when you're told to rejoice, you're doing it even if you're miserable. Well, I actually think that's a wrong answer also. And because I think that there are these wrong answers, we're looking for simple, quick sort of explanations and answers about what joy really is. And so I want to I give you a taste, but I want to see if I can set you in the right direction to where you will feel enthusiasm about pursuing this further to really see what's really happening here when we're promised joy. And I think it starts with that question, what is joy? And the first thing I want to say is, contrary to what you may have heard from people who are trying to defend God, right? God made a promise of joy, you don't feel it, then we have to feel it, find a way to explain that. Contrary to what we may have said, or you may have heard when we were trying to defend God, I want to say that joy is not that complicated. That what you think it is, what you thought it was, what the rest of the world thinks it is, before they heard of about it in the Christian context is pretty close to what it is. <laughs> when, when you talk about being filled with joy, we all know what that means, right? If we're not in a big theological discussion and you say, and I say to you, what brings you joy? You understand that question. And you'll say something, my, my spouse or, or playing tennis or, or you know, uh, Jane Austen books or whatever it might be. Something brings you joy. You understand what joy is. It has something to do with this feeling of well-being and this feeling of pleasure and this feeling of happiness. Those are all somehow connected to joy. But if you ask Christians that, if you say, are you rejoicing? We, we go on these weird directions where suddenly joy has nothing to do with pleasure and nothing to do with happiness and nothing to do with the feeling of well-being. The problem is we haven't replaced it with anything. So it just has, it's just something we're supposed to feel, but we have no idea what it is which is a really challenging uh, task. So I'm going to start by just saying joy is not that complicated. 
it is kind of what you thought. We have a shared definition of it in the world, and it's pretty close to that. Now, there are some nuances I do want to give you tonight to, to explain it, because I do agree in one sense that joy and happiness are not the same, but, I, but not for the reasons we've been told. So let's, let's look a little bit at what joy isn't very briefly, and a little bit of what joy is, very briefly. And so if we kind of walk through it, the first thing I want to say is joy, scriptural joy, is not just optimism. It's not simply just believing that the best thing is going to happen, that everything will always work out. Sometimes, I'm, I tend to be an optimist. I'm happy I'm an optimist. I don't want to necessarily change that. But sometimes just, I try to not just be an optimist because there's that old story, right, probably created by a pessimist, that old joke which says that the optimist is the guy who falls out of the window uh, from a 20-story a, a building, and halfway down he yells into the person who's on that floor, and he says, it's going all right so far. <laughs> See, that's not really smart optimism, right? That's just denial is what we call that. <laughs> that's just ignoring that it is inevitable for that person this is not going to go well at the end. And I don't think optimism, if, if all we mean by optimism is denial, is believing things will work out, you know, just that kind of that, that, that cliche that, oh, it, it's all going to be okay. Sometimes maybe it isn't. Sometimes maybe something isn't going to work out the way you want it to. So I don't think joy is just optimism because if it was, then when that happens and that doesn't work out, then we're done with joy. And it would be based on a lie, and I don't think it should be based on a lie. I think joy is also not the absence. Oops. Ignore the third one that's there. Oh, no. oh my gosh. Okay, that's just too much. I have to go back. Here we go. Okay. Here we go. Joy is not the absence of all negative emotions. Sometimes we think that joy means you can't also feel sorrow. But scripture doesn't say that. Scripture seems to indicate that we can both rejoice and feel sorrow at the same time, sometimes. Scripture seems to indicate we can feel joy and feel angry at the same time, sometimes. So joy is not the absence of all negative emotions. And if that's what you think joy is, then you are absolutely 100% correct that you have never experienced that on this earth and are very unlikely to do so. But that's not what it is. It doesn't mean not feeling other emotions. Now, there is good news, and that's that for all of eternity in heaven, there are certain negative emotions that will no longer be, be needed, and we will no longer feel them. But that's not just what joy is. There's something about joy that enables you to feel a certain happiness, a certain well-being, a certain pleasure, at the same time that there's a recognition of the need for these other negative emotions. Number three, joy is not simply perseverance or a sort of grin and bear it contentment. This is what it's become, I think, for a lot of Christians. That we've just been told, well, you're supposed to rejoice. Well, I don't feel very happy. Oh, oh, but joy is not happiness. Well, what is joy? Well, it's just pressing on. No, it's not. <laughs> pressing on is pressing on. That's a good thing too. Perseverance is a good thing. But to say that joy and perseverance are the same thing is really rough. Because for one thing, I now know not, don't know what to do about the verse that says, the Lord rejoices over you with shouts of joy. The Lord perseveres and tolerates you. <laughs> That's a very different message, isn't it? <laughs> the Lord grins and smiles and pretends it's okay. Joy is not the, the, the moment that you're having a hard time and you say, praise the Lord, and everybody knows that's not even what you mean. 
It's not that. There is a place for perseverance, of course. But joy and perseverance are different. And it's not this sort of grin and bear it, what we call contentment. It's interesting, even contentment. That's not what contentment means in scripture. I once heard somebody point out that, you know, because Paul talks about being content in every circumstance. So we get this idea that it means just accepting all circumstances and kind of tolerating and grinning and bearing it through it. But what's interesting is I actually heard somebody once talk about the actual Greek word for contentment and that the, 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 the closest understanding of it is purring of a cat contentment. <laughs> I mean, that's very different than grin and bear it, isn't it? <laughs> that's very different than sort of perseverance. That is true contentment. Think about a cat being content. That's a, that's a different picture, isn't it? So, so joy is closer to that contentment than it is to the sort of, we're just going to persevere. So, but I think the reason we got here, the reason that we think joy is just persevering and sort of thinking good thoughts and, and hanging in there and, and smiling and saying the right things and pretending everything's okay. I think the reason we kind of got there is because that we do want to make a distinction between joy and happiness and we should, but not for the reasons that I think we think we should. I think that joy and happiness feel very similar. A lot of times when we say joy and happiness are not the same, what we mean is they feel different. But once you do that, once you take any sense of happiness and well-being out of joy, any pleasure out of joy, then what is it? Well, then it's just perseverance. <laughs> I think the joy and happiness feel very similar. I think they're both this sense of well-being. But I think when we say that joy is not the same as happiness, no matter how we say it, no matter how we couch it, no matter how much we say joy is the better virtue and it's the more spiritual one, I think what we tend to hear is, in reality, to us, joy is less than happiness. Happiness is good. It feels good. We like it. Joy is actually, spiritually, it's more. We exalt it. We say it's more. But in real terms, if we were given a moment of either joy or happiness, we'd say, I'll take happiness because that's what we really think is, is the better of the two. And I think what we're missing there is this. I think that joy is what happiness wants to be. I think that joy is not less than happiness. I think joy is more than happiness. I think that happiness is the black and white version and joy is the color version. I think happiness is the silent film and joy is the musical. I think happiness is the flat paper and joy is three-dimensional. I think happiness is fragile and finicky and paper thin. And joy is substantive and solid and eternal. I think the difference between joy and happiness is that happiness is exactly that. It's finicky. Happiness only happens in response to things going well. If our circumstances are good, we're happy. We like what's happening, we're happy. We even say it that way to each other. Well, are you happy now? Meaning, do you have everything you want now? By the way, if you're ever saying that to somebody, the answer is almost always no. Just if you haven't figured that out yet. But happiness is, is this, it's, it's, it's dependent upon circumstances, which makes it very fragile. It means that at any moment you're happy, you know that it could always not be. And I think that happiness, we've learned after a certain age, that happiness always has this this fear in it because all of our life happiness has always been followed by something less happy, right? This is the nature of life. 
after a certain age, you figure it out. This is the nature of life. It goes happy stuff, unhappy stuff. Happy stuff, unhappy stuff. Happy stuff, unhappy stuff. I once heard somebody say, and it is a joke, I don't actually think this is right, but they said, Jesus said that he came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And they said, what's life? And they said, well, it's like this. So Jesus came that we might have this. (laughs) I don't think that's right. But, but I do think what happens is when we have those through our life, we have happiness, which is followed by disappointment. The happiness is temporary. It just doesn't last. Even for positive people like me, there's always a tinge of something didn't happen the way exactly you wanted. There's disappointment, there's sorrow. And if nothing else, there's just the temporary nature of the happiness. It comes and goes. And different people may respond differently. Some people will look at this process and say, every time something good happens, something bad's going to happen after. Some of us, just because of our personality, say every time something bad happens, something good is about to happen. Both are true. (laughs) Right? It's not a question of who's actually right. We're both right. Because that is how it happens. And if happiness is tied to those moments, if that's what happiness is, then not only is happiness finicky and doesn't last throughout our whole life, but even at the moments we have it, it's always tinged with fear about what's coming tomorrow. It's always tinged with sorrow about it not being complete. I once heard, I don't know if it's true or not, heard a psychologist talking about the reason we cry at happy moments and at the ends of happy movies. He said the reason we cry is because there's always a reminder in us that this ain't going to (laughs) last. That sounds really bleak, but he could be right. That we see a happy movie and we we see the the couple happy and we're really happy about it, but we're crying because we know that our life doesn't, isn't like that. Somebody once said of happy stories, the only difference between a happy ending and not is where you end the story. (laughs) And we know that even when we watch a movie, we walk away and we know the happily ever after it is a myth. And we also live in the land of sequels and sequels themselves constantly remind us that that it's a myth because to come back to the sequel, you have to mess up what ended well. (laughs) So there's always this, this feeling, there's always this fragility to happiness. In fact, to call it the soap opera syndrome, you know, soap operas are this long form of story, right? Episodic story that can go years and years and years. You can have the same story essentially Say, go over a dozen years, 30 years, 40 years. And in order to maintain a story that long, what do you have to do? You have to constantly pull the rug out from under people. Every happy moment will be followed by something which will not only be less happy, but will to all extents and purposes at some point erase the entire happy moment. You have the great wedding, which is followed by the great betrayal. You have the person who's cured of cancer who then dies because they're shot by somebody turns out it was their evil twin and they weren't ever cured or they have amnesia and they forget everything what's that or an alien alien. but but that's the nature of a soap opera and i think in our culture we experience what's called what i call what's called called by me uh (laughs) soap opera syndrome when something good is happening we're just waiting for the rug to be pulled out from under us and again personality wise some of us are more that way some of us are less that way but there's always a degree of that it's like Every happy moment is Christmas, and we know there's always the day after. (laughs) But what if there was a happiness, that feeling that we have of fulfillment and satisfaction? What if there was a happiness that didn't have the tinge of disappointment? What if there was a happiness that was not affected by the circumstances of life? 
What if there was a happiness that we could experience even when things were bad, that whether it was up or down, we still had this sense of well-being? What if it was connected to things, in other words, that were not temporal, but eternal? I think the difference between joy and happiness is that happiness is feeling good about things that are temporary. And joy is feeling good about things that are eternal and permanent. They will never go away. They will never be lost. What demands our attention is the temporal. But is there really any reason it should? So as I said, I think joy is the three-dimensional happiness. It is everything that we wanted happiness to be. Uh, Let's look at a verse, Psalm 15 verse 11 says this you make known to me the path of life in your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore this is really interesting uh, this i've mentioned this before i'll make this very brief because many of you have heard me say this several times the he- hebrew poetry which the psalms are hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme sounds right when in in english poetry when we rhyme we rhyme sounds we rhyme the the, the last sound of each word In Hebrew poetry, they rhyme meanings. It's called parallelism, but what they do is they rhyme meanings. That's just how they think of it. It's actually really good because it makes it a lot easier to translate, right? We get get more of the sense of the poetry with Hebrew poetry than we do when we translate sound-centered poetry because the sounds are different. So what we have here in this verse is we have a triune parallelism. We actually have the same meaning said three different times. And because they're parallel, each line helps define the other line. It helps us understand it all better because we know it's saying the same thing three different times. Let me show you what I mean. It says here, you make known to me the path of life. So this is the first statement. It says that God has revealed life. Okay? I mean, there's modifiers in there, but God has revealed to you life, the way to, the way to life. So there's something about this, revelation, this, this idea of revelation of God and this idea of it bringing us life, these are the points that we're going to find parallel in each of the next lines. So the next line says this, in your presence, that's parallel to God's revelation. What is God's revelation? It's himself. Everything that God has revealed to us that's important is about him. (laughs) So it says, you have made known to me is the same as in your presence. When I'm with you, I know things. And the the idea of the path of life is parallel with fullness of joy. I like this because life is a really broad term, but you'll notice if you really look at every time scripture says, except for really clinical terms, like someone's alive and then they're dead physically, most of the time when scripture uses the word life, it means that thing that we all want, whatever it is. It means that sense of when people say, I don't know where my life has gone. What they mean is I had expectations and hopes and desires and dreams, and that all went away. And if we said to them, I can give you your life back, they would understand that what we meant is I can give you back that joy, that satisfaction, that fulfillment. So the idea of fullness of joy and life, they really are the same thing in scripture. It's just another way to describe it. So this is telling us that the presence of God is fullness of joy, is, is when we have that, that complete non-fickle well-being. And it makes sense, right? Because God doesn't change and he doesn't go away. And he doesn't disappoint. So if our, if our joy is centered in him, there's fullness of joy in his presence. There's the completion of it, the perfection of it. But then we have this third line, which is really interesting. 
at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. We can understand that at your right hand is similar to in the presence of God, right? That means when I'm right with you. That, there's the parallel. It's very obvious. We see all three. But then we get this idea of pleasure. And it's really interesting for all that I'll talk about joy and pleasure and happiness. I'll be very different that here the Hebrews are equating pleasure and joy. So if you think joy is something other than how it feels, if you think it's not pleasurable, then I want to tell you that's not how the Hebrews saw it. Now, C.S. Lewis has an interesting statement. He says, uh, he, he says at one point in one of his quotes in one of his books, in fact, in a book called Surprised by Joy, he says, I wonder sometimes if pleasure is just our best substitute for joy. And I understand what he's saying because it's kind of like happiness. Pleasure in our world is what? It's temporary. If, think of all the greatest pleasures you've had in your life. They came and they went. That's how it happens. Whatever it is that gives you pleasure, it's always temporary. But notice what's different about these pleasures. They are forevermore. They're not temporary. It is saying very clearly to us, the fullness of joy and eternal pleasures are the same thing. If pleasure wasn't fickle, if your whole life was just one pleasure. And we talked about the fact that our purpose is a purpose of delight. Well, if it's a purpose of delight, doesn't that mean that when we've reached that purpose, our whole life should be delightful? <laughs> there should be pleasure in it. There should be joy in it. So again, I'm just wanting you to see the joy is not so far removed from your ideas of pleasure and happiness as maybe you've been taught. The difference is permanence. The difference is reliability, not the feel of it. Another verse, 1 Peter 1.8 says this, So you, though you have not seen him, referring to God, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. He says to them, you love him. And because you love him, even though you don't see him, you believe in him. And even though you don't see him, even though you're not in his presence or at his right hand to kind of call back to the psalm, even though he's not here now in the sense that you might really like physically to see like Jesus was before this moment. Peter says, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. First of all, I just love the glorious redundancy. The epistle writers get to do glorious redundancy. The rest of us pastors just do really inglorious redundancy. But I love that he says rejoice with joy. I mean, what else are you going to rejoice with? But it really hammers that home, right? You rejoice with a joy, but not just a joy, a joy that you can't even express. See, we have a hard time defining joy, not because it isn't happiness, but because it is what happiness wants to be. And most of the time, what we've experienced is the two-dimensional, black and white, silent version of joy. <laughs> and so we have a hard time seeing something bigger and better. And it feels like it must be less. But he says, believing in God because you love him, you will find a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I really like that idea too, that there's a joy that is filled with glory because let's be honest, there's a lot of happiness and pleasure, which is filled with a little shame and a little guilt, a little hidden disappointment, a little lingering sorrow. You know, all these things are not quite glorious, but there's, there's something about the idea of glory in scripture, which is an idea of weightiness, an idea that has substance. This is, again, I think it's saying joy is weighty. It's substantive. It really is something. Happiness is like a soap bubble, and it's gone. Joy has all the pretty 
and value and sort of delight that you might have in a soap bubble, but it doesn't go away. So that's joy. As I mentioned, though, we've already talked about this as a fruit of the Spirit. So we already know that this comes not because we pursue joy, but because we pursue the Lord. And by the way, isn't that what those last two verses said? In your presence is fullness of joy. As you love the Lord, you feel a joy inexpressible. So what's the goal? To learn to love the Lord. How do you do that? By spending time with him, by getting to know him. I do think the truth of God is the truth of all the people that we love. We don't typically love people just because we decided to love them. I do think, by the way, we decide to open ourselves up to loving people and even individuals. You can make a choice to say, I'm just not even going to go there, right? Even, even in a romantic sense, there's a, a, a Solomon at one point says, do not arouse or awaken love before it so desires, right? You can open yourself up to it or not. And I think in the case of God, you can open yourself up to it or not. But, but once you open it up to it, you don't, you don't just decide, I just love God. It's not something wrong with you if you don't. I would say the, the, the old song is truly, truly true that to know him is to love him. The more you pursue him, the more you get to know him, the more that love is, a, is itself a treasure. And out of that treasure comes this inexpressible joy. But that's part of the fruit of the spirit. That's part of the character of nobility. We've already talked about that. So am I just being ingloriously redundant? I hope not. But there is a, another piece to this. There's a piece that is truly a gift. It's truly a treasure and it's so rare. It is so precious. If, if, if something being rare is what makes it precious, which often it is, then in our world, this is one of the most precious treasures. It's a joy in trials. Now, if you've been in church a while, you hear the idea about rejoicing in trials and joy in trials, and it doesn't feel like a gift or a treasure. It feels like an incredible, difficult, impossible duty. <laughs> but I hope to give you a little bit different perspective on that. Because every time that scripture says rejoice in trials, it does not say rejoice in trials because you should. It tells you why. It says, here's why it makes sense to, to consider a trial and have joy. Here's why you as a fanatic, as a disciple, as a Christian, as a believer, here's why you can have a trial and have genuine joy. That's really what scripture says. Here's why it can be. And here's why you should look at it that way. It doesn't say you just have to grin and bear it tolerate it and persevere. It also doesn't say you can't feel sad at the same time. So I'm just going to give you three. I'm just going to give you three verses. We're going to do this pretty quickly. I'm going to give you three verses and three reasons why we, why we can rejoice in trials. Let's say it that way instead of should. Why it's a gift, why it's possible to us. And you'll see with each of these three reasons, these are impossible for people who are not fanatics to even grasp. Maybe they can find a way to rejoice in trial that's not these, but they can't grab these three because these three require you be a little radical and a little fanatical. But before we even look at the why, I do want you to think about what a, what a gift it is. Think about what it would mean if you were able to feel happy, not pretend to feel happy, not make it through another day. <laughs> but actually feel a sense of well-being and joy. What would it mean if you could do that no matter what was happening in your life? What kind of gift would it be if without being in denial, you know, and you're not just falling and saying, good, going well so far. What if, what if without being in denial, seeing everything squarely, you were still able to feel really good about things 
no matter what happened. You know what it would mean? It would mean that nobody in the world could take that from you, right? Because no matter what they did to you, no matter how they changed your circumstance, no matter what the complications arise, nobody and no circumstance and no devil could take that away from you because it would be for other reasons. It would be something that was permanent that wasn't so fragile. What would it be like to have the gift of a non-fragile happiness? That's the gift. It is a shame that this gift has become an onerous burden. We've really missed something there. A trial is already an onerous burden. I really doubt the epistle writers wanted to make it more of an onerous burden. I think they wanted to do the opposite. I think they wanted to say, you have a unique gift and treasure in how you look at these trials. Uh, you know, and it's kind of an example of this idea that nobody can take this away from you. This is a, a uh, tapestry uh, created by a, a tapestry company created by King James I. And so it's a royal, royal tapestry makers. This is one of six tapestries they made about a philosopher named Diogenes. So Diogenes is the guy who's sitting on the ground. Do you see the guy who's sitting? Can't see him? I mean, I can, there is. Right there, right there. Okay. That's Diogenes he's sitting on the ground and he's sitting right in front of a barrel. Yeah, it's not really, there we go. There's a lot of like, see the barrel? I'm on the barrel now. He's sitting in front of a barrel. The story about Diogenes is he lived in that barrel. So that's his house. Okay. The guy standing, right, in the kind of military garb with his entourage, that's Alexander the Great. So here's the story. There's a story about Alexander the Great. Happens every week. There's a story about Alexander the Great and Diogenes. And this tapestry is a reflection of that. There's actually words written along the bottom frame. It's really hard to see, but they are there. And I'll tell you what those words are in a second. But here's the story. Diogenes was a philosopher. He's what's called a Stoic. And Diogenes believed that the way to contentment, and he did use the word contentment rather than happiness or joy, the way to contentment was to live a very simple, basic life. The idea being that the more simple and basic your life is, the less anybody can take from you, right? If you can be content living in a barrel, then your odds of staying content are high. Because what can someone do to you? He even said at one point, someone said, well, I'll take my barrel. And he said, well, I'll find another barrel. <laughs> because the barrel's not that even that important, right? Okay, so the story is that Alexander the Great, conqueror of worlds, man of incredible ambition, who wanted to take over the world and came uh, about as close as he could possibly conceivably have come. I mean, that really, you know, if you want to admire someone for accomplishing their ambitions, he's a guy you can admire. If you want to admire someone for being kind, don't admire him. But, but here he is. Here's Alexander the Great. He, the story is that he came into Corinth. So this is Corinth. He came into Corinth. Corinth he had already conquered. Then he comes into Corinth, and Diogenes is sitting in his way, sitting outside his barrel, just kind of lounging in the sun. And Alexander the Great comes up to him, and with a much bigger entourage. The story is there's horsemen and army. You know, it's just it's the full weight of Alexander the Great. And they come up to him, and Alexander the Great has heard of Diogenes. And he's kind of heard that he's this great philosopher. And so he comes up to him and he sees this guy dressed in rags, sitting in front of a barrel. And he says, I expected more from you. And Diogenes says, does that make you unhappy? 
And Alexander the Great says, kind of. And Diogenes says, that's why I am wealthier than you will ever be. And the idea is what he tells Alexander the Great is, people can take away from you everything you've built. You are constantly having to be vigilant against your own men. And this is true. Probably he was, we don't know for sure, but very likely assassinated by one of his own generals. Um, but he's, he, he basically says to Alexander the Great, your happiness is dependent upon your being able to continue to conquer worlds. And in fact, there's stories that Alexander the Great was starting to become unhappy just because he started running out of world to conquer. And, and he says to him, people can take it from you. You have so much you can be taken from you. Your, your risk is so high. For me, nobody can take anything from me. In fact, which of us is more powerful? I made you unhappy by sitting here in the road. I don't care what you do. Alexander the Great, according to the story, had the wisdom to sort of recognize Diogenes' point and sort of exalted him, but not the wisdom to change anything about the way he lived his life. But what's written along the bottom is kind of a summation. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's probably apocryphal, but it's the conversation they had in two sentences that kind of encapsulates the whole attitude of both of them. Alexander the Great rides in, and according to the bottom of the, the tapestry, he says to Diogenes, you are a great philosopher, I would like to bless you. Ask anything you want, and I'll give it to you. And Diogenes looks up at Alexander the Great and says, just move to the side, you're in my light. <laughs> the point being, you can't do anything for me that the son hasn't already given me. Now, there's a big difference between Diogenes and the kind of joy I'm talking about, and it's this. For Diogenes, the, the only thing he could see was a contentment that was based upon people not being able to take anything from you. And the only way to make sure no one could take anything from you was to have nothing. And in fact, the whole Stoic philosophy was not about great heights of joy or feeling great. It was just about never feeling bad. <laughs> What's interesting about the Christian, there's, there's a commonality in that we both understand that our joy can be based on things that no man can take from us. But the difference is with Diogenes, the only way to get there was to have nothing that anyone could take. But the Christian knows they have so many treasures in Christ. We've already talked about seven of them but no one can take those from you. No one can take your purpose of delight or your identity of substance or your character of nobility or your life of love or your perspective on people or your humility of mind or one other one that I left out. Whatever it was, they still can't take it from you. A life of love. Did I not say that one? Whatever it is, they, a stability of conviction. They can't take it from you. Those are things that are eternal. Beyond that, they can't take your salvation. They can't take the love of the Father who loves you. The things that you have that you can rejoice in, Diogenes could only sort of embrace and accept his lot in life. That really was the main lesson of the Stoic. But the believer can actually rejoice and delight in what God has given him that can never be taken from it by anyone. And in that sense, Diogenes is right. No Alexander the Great, no president, no politician, no celebrity, no family member, nobody can actually take from you the joy that is offered to you. So let's look at three of the reasons that it says uh, that it says we can rejoice in trials. Let's take a look. Number one, Jesus says this in two of the Gospels, for sure. He says something very similar in all four. This exact quote shows up pretty much the same in both Matthew and Luke. He says this, 
Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Let's be really clear. Blessed is a spiritual world, a spiritual word in the Christian world that we tend to think means something about being spiritually good, right? We think blessed means you're, you're spiritually okay. And that's fine. He could be saying spiritually, you're kind of earning brownie points if people persecute you. That's all well and good, but that's not actually what this verse says. Blessed actually means happy. Happy. So Jesus intentionally says something provocative here. You see that? He says, you know who's happy? He says, the people who are happy are those who are insulted and persecuted and and slandered because of me. Those people are happy, not just spiritual, not just brownie points. They're actually happy. And it's a really high level of happiness. The literal rendering of the word blessed is happy like the angels. So he starts by saying this really weird thing, right? Let's just be honest. Again, it may sound really spiritual to say, yeah, I totally get that. Let's be honest. We don't get that. It doesn't make any sense. Are you happy when people lie about you? Are you happy when people say things about you that aren't true? Are you happy when people persecute you for your beliefs in Jesus? I can tell by the reaction of angry Christians all over the country, they don't seem very blessed when people persecute them. But he goes on and he says this, rejoice and be glad, right? What a weird thing. People are persecuting you, rejoice, be happy and be glad in case you thought rejoice meant something other than actually being cheerful. (laughs) Be glad. Why? Because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here's what I think we just need to understand. And it's not complicated but I think it's okay to know this. So he's not saying that there's something inherently good or blessed or happy or about being persecuted. He's not saying that Christians are masochists and we like being persecuted for the sake of being persecuted. In fact, Paul says in one of his letters, hey, pray that you're never persecuted. Just pray for serenity. I mean, there's nothing noble about being persecuted in that sense, that you don't, you don't need it. It's not that that itself is good, but Jesus says the reason that you can be glad, that you can rejoice even when that happens, he says it's very simple. God's going to reward you. Now, rewards are an interesting topic in scripture, and I just want to say this really, really clearly, because if you don't get this, then the whole understanding of rewards will be totally messed up. The rewards were offered in heaven cannot be must not be, never should be confused and conflated with the grace that we receive in the gospel. Our love, the Father's love for us is never a reward. Do you understand that? It's just what we get. The holiness that we've been given in Christ is never a reward. It's just a gift. Do you understand that? The the purpose of delight is not a reward. It's just what we've been created for. All the things that we receive in the gospel, the fellowship with God, that's not a reward. Occasionally drives me nuts. Occasionally I will hear people preach that when we get to heaven, you know, some of us will be basically closer to Jesus than others. And I just want to say that's nonsense. That's based on nothing in scripture because our closeness to Jesus is based entirely upon what Jesus did at the cross and he did it the same way for all of us. So I just want to be clear. Scripture does say there's such a thing as rewards. 
but it never confuses them with those things. Okay, you got that? Now, having said that, we can then be comfortable saying, I don't know what rewards are, seems a little interesting, but here's the bottom line point that we should be very comfortable with. What it really means is when people aren't seeing the good in what you're doing, because that's what happens when people lie about you and persecute you. You're standing up for something and people aren't seeing it and they're being mean to you about it. And you're continuing to be faithful and they're just calling you stupid for being faithful. And you know, you're dying in the Colosseum and there's people who are just like, that's just idiocy. People aren't getting it. You're not being seen. And then you die. And it would be very easy as a Christian to go, I don't want to do that. (laughs) It is a motivation that scripture gives us that we are supposed to see as a motivation. That God sees what you do and will reward you. He notices. He acknowledges it. He will say, he's not going to love you more. And your reward is not going to make you happier than other people in heaven because our happiness is all being in the presence of God. But I think it is to be understood that when we get to heaven, he will look at you and he will say, that time when you cared for your kid and nobody else in the world saw you do it and your kid persecuted you for your own love, that happens, parents know that. (laughs) That time when you were faithful to your spouse and all your secular friends thought you were just dumb, That time when you were honest and honorable at work and everybody else thought you were ruining things. That time when you continued to stand true for Jesus and the whole world said you're nuts. God's going to say to you, I saw that. It was cool. And I don't know about you, but in some ways, maybe that's all the reward we need. But if we need more, we'll get more. I, I don't know what the reward is, but I really just like the idea that God will be acknowledging, I saw you. Because I think when we're persecuted, that's the hardest thing. I think when people lie about us, that's the hardest thing. You know, as a pastor, I'll tell you this, and I'll tell you this because I think we've all had this experience in different ways, but this is one that as a pastor happens a lot. There are so many times as a pastor that somebody begins to get really unhappy with what you've done in the church or who you are. And as a result of that, they start saying things about you that aren't true. It happens. It happens to every pastor. Just take my word for it. Never met a pastor that hasn't happened to. They start saying things about you that aren't true. And you know what the faithful pastor cannot do? Defend themselves. There are moments at which the faithful pastor can't even offer a defense because to do so would require that they speak ill of the person speaking ill of them. Now, if that sounds complicated to you, just trust me. It happens. It happens. And you know that you have a choice. I can vindicate myself or I can let this one go. And letting it go is so hard because nobody will ever know. Like I had to share that to you in general terms because there's no statute of limitations. And when it's okay for me to say, by the way, so-and-so at such and such a time did such and such a thing. (laughs) But you know what? I know that God saw it and it matters. And I can rejoice when those things happen, not because I'm being persecuted, but I can rejoice knowing that somebody saw me. Somebody sees you and acknowledges you and will not forget. He will forget your sins and he will remember your faithfulness. That's a great deal. And he will reward you. So that's one reason we can can rejoice because God sees when you do good 
and he will vindicate it and acknowledge it. I do kind of wonder sometime if the rewards will be a little bit like awards and that it will be a moment when Jesus will vindicate us in front of everybody, <laughs> but in a way that isn't harmful to anyone else. I do kind of wonder if it'll be like, but, but everybody will get something, right? There also won't be a competition to it. There will just be a real sense of here we are. And I know awards shows take forever, but we've got eternity. So I think it'll be okay. That's just number one. I don't think we should shy away from the idea that God will reward us. We can rejoice when those trials have to do with persecution, when we're standing up for Jesus and things go awry, when we do the right thing. And as, as some people say, no good, de- no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> when that happens to know that God sees it and he will reward us at the appropriate time. It's okay to be motivated by that because scripture tells us that. And I think it tells us that to motivate us. Okay, that's one. It's not the only reason. That's one. Number two, he says, therefore, says uh, Paul in second Corinthians, therefore, we do not lose heart. Okay, essentially, we rejoice. We don't lose heart. We continue to be encouraged. We continue to be happy. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. He says there, outwardly, we are wasting away. If you've not seen it, there's a movie out there in the last, came out in the last few years. Um, it's called Paul the Apostle. Um, it's actually a really good movie. I, I, I don't, I don't uh, out of hand recommend every Christian movie that exists. So I've actually seen this. It's a good movie. <laughs> but one of the things I really liked about Paul the Apostle is it reminds you about the reality of Paul. And the whole movie is about the end of his life. It's his last days, basically. And he looks awful. It just looks awful. It is painful to watch him. He's hunched over. He can't stand up straight. It's clear that he is in incredible pain. And you're reminded as you watch him, this is a Paul who's been beaten over and over and over and over throughout his life. This is a Paul who has suffered starvation and the ills that come from starving your body. This is a Paul who suffered shipwreck and who knows what sort of things happened there. This is a Paul who spent time among the dregs and the various viruses and issues that were running around that no one even understood. And to watch him in his, his hunched over, in pain, physically decaying body. And then the actor does a great job of showing you his joy. And it reminds me of this verse. When Paul says outwardly or we are wasting away, he's not just being poetic. He's feeling it and seeing it. When he says my light and momentary troubles, one way to read this verse is to think Paul just doesn't understand suffering. But to do that, you have to ignore Paul's life. The truth is Paul experienced suffering, let's just be honest, on a much higher level than most of us have. I, I'm not, I can't speak for everyone. But, but to be imprisoned as frequently as he was, to lose friends, to, to unfair persecution and death as frequently as he did, to, to be persecuted and slandered and lied at, to have lost, to have fallen from the status of powerful, rich, prestigious man to who he is now, which is a prisoner that is despised by everybody except the way, except the believers. He understood suffering. And yet he calls his suffering light 
and momentary troubles. By the way, Paul's also gracious and compassionate, and, and, and he says it that way because he never would have said that about them. Even though he believed it, he would not have said to them, your troubles are only light and momentary, get over it. But he expresses his own because he wants them to recognize the truth is, it's that momentary. Remember, joy is being anchored in the things that are eternal. And what Paul is saying is, yeah, life is rough. Life is hard. I got stuff going on right now that weighs me down. I'm wasting away. But then Paul says, but there's this weird thing. There's this, this privilege that we have as believers that he's trying to get the Corinthians to see. And that privilege is that what you see is not what you get. That, that the, the things that we can see don't tell the whole story. They don't even do a good job of telling part of the story. Paul says, we fix our eyes on what is unseen because what is unseen is what is real. That's what's eternal. It is only in comparison to the eternity of glory that he can call his troubles light and momentary. Because in the reality, you know, where Paul's at today, he has now been experiencing the eternal weight of glory much longer, much, much longer than he experienced the temporary troubles depending on what you understand about whether he's, we don't need to talk about that. (laughs) So I think part of what Paul is saying here is that the fanatic knows that what we see is not what we get. And the fanatic knows above all things, a really, really surprising countercultural truth. This is a gift. We know something that the rest of the world cannot and does not know, doesn't even have reason to know or believe. We know because of the revelation of God that the universe is ultimately a happy ending. Despite the fact that everything we see in life tells us that happiness comes up and then goes down and that because death is everybody's end, ultimately sad wins. (laughs) On this earth, entropy, decay, wasting away seems to win. You know, it's interesting that when you talk to people sometimes who say, you know, there's movies and some, I get it. Some movies are complex and rich and, and emotionally there's a struggle and there's a pathos and they end unhappy and they're still really good movies. Some movies are, are really happy and, and rich and they end really happy. But occasionally you run into people who say, I don't like happy movies. And you say, why not? And they say, because they're not realistic. And what they mean is it doesn't mirror their life But what we know, the secret we know, what the fanatic gets to cling to is that happy endings are the most realistic. That is the way the universe actually works. The stuff we're in now, you know, if if a happy ending is just depends on where you end the story, the joy is that we end the story on an eternal note of happiness. There is no end. Once we hit that eternal happiness, then it doesn't end. But we tend to think it's going to end on death And it's just all sad. So one of the reasons Paul says we can rejoice in trials is because we do know that what we can't see is so much more substantive, so much more real, so much more permanent. And that what is happening will end with a happy ending. That it actually will be okay. That it isn't just optimism. I end all my emails and and the very rare occasion when I might actually write an actual letter. Don't know when the last time I did that was, but 
I end all my emails with the same closing and it's smiling at the future. And I do that. I actually stole that from Solomon. There's actually Proverbs 31 talks about a woman and talks about the noble woman, kind of a, the, the, the woman that, that, as you say, we all should aspire to be. He's wanting, he's, it's actually the woman he's saying that men should marry. So you can decide who's aspiring to what there. But, but what he says about this woman at one point, he says that she laughs at the future. No matter how hard things are, no matter how difficult things are. And that woman that he paints, there's difficulty. <laughs> but he says one of the things about her is that she laughs at the future. Or some translation, smiles. And laughing at the future can sound, in our age, cynical. So I went with smiling. Or maniacal. You know, <laughs> Yeah, sure, laugh at the future. Smiles at the future. I really like that. Because it does say, whatever's happening today, we can smile at where it's going to go. It really will be okay. I actually had somebody once tell me that. They said, I like reading your emails because I get to the end, it's a smiling in the future, and it just makes me think everything is going to be okay. And I thought, well, I'm glad that that makes such a difference in your life. I'm a little surprised, but I'm happy about that. It's just not all there is. The truth is soap opera syndrome is backwards. The truth is the universe works in such a way that no matter how many times the rug gets pulled out from under you, in the end of the story, we stand. And finally, he says this. James says this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. This is a strange way to see the world. One of the benefits, the stability of conviction we talked about a few weeks ago, one of the benefits of honoring the authority of Scripture is it allows Scripture to remind you that the way that people see the world isn't necessarily the correct way to see it. And then it challenges us with really bizarre ways to see the world, saying that this is how the world really is. And to have James come along and not just say, buck up, persevere, be content, accept your lot, be resigned, but to say, think of it as pure joy, just joy, all joy, whenever you face trials of many kinds. There's all kinds of different trials, but he's saying whatever the trial is, long or hard or your fault or not your fault or whatever it is, whatever the trial is, he says that you can actually think of that and find joy in it. And again, not because we're masochists and we take joy in the trial itself, but because we have a gift as a believer, as a fanatic, we have a gift the rest of the world doesn't have. When the rest of the world experiences a trial, the only punctuation they know, the only way they know to see that, the only worldview they have for most of them is to say, bad things are happening. <laughs> and how should I feel about bad things? Bad. That makes sense. <laughs> but James says, we have more than that though. See, the rest of the world which has the happiness, has the, the up and down life, there's no real cause or purpose for it all, is there? It comes and it goes. And it's kind of random luck. And maybe you're riding the top or you're not. And if it's not random luck, then the only other recourse we usually have is to assume that it's us. And then we waffle between feeling really proud about what we've done and really ashamed about what we've done and all based upon whether life is going well or not. And that's not the way that life actually works because sometimes this thing that we don't know what to call other than chance happens. And through no fault of your own, bad things happen. Or through fault of somebody else, bad things happen to you. And then sometimes through your own fault, bad things happen to you. But see, the thing is, 
without the gift of believing what James says we can believe, which we'll look at in a second, without the gift of knowing there's something else going on, we are forced in each of those situations to simply try to figure out. So if, if it's us, then it's us. And we just focus on ourselves and we waffle between guilt and self-righteousness. But if it's not us, if it's someone else being evil to us, then all we've got left is bitterness and protection from the rest of the world. And if it's none of those things and we can't pin it on anybody and it just appears to be a thing that happened that was nobody's fault, well, then we're just left in despair. But James says, no matter what the trial, no matter what brought it about, whether it was your fault or not your fault or someone else's fault, or it doesn't matter. He says, I know it hurts, but you have this gift. You can actually think of it with joy. And why? Because of this. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. This word testing, it's not like a test that you take. This does not mean God is, is, is finding out if you have faith. First of all, can we all stipulate God already knows? It also has been described sometimes as God showing us whether we have faith or not. That actually is not what this verse says either. That's a little more palatable, but that's not what it says. The word testing here, and it's more clear in a, in a passage from Peter, which says almost the same thing here. The word testing is talking more about actually being purified. So you think about that the, the, the Peter correlates it to the flames and the fire of either like a, a sword, a, a metalsmith or a potter. That either one, they heat it up. And as they heat something up, it actually sets it. It sets it. It hardens it. And if there is impurity in it, then it actually either, either breaks it and the, the creator starts over or it, it removes that impurity through the fire. This is what it means. The testing of your faith. Your faith is becoming stronger and harder and more pure and better. And the trials are doing that. Whatever it is, for whatever reason the trial comes, whether it was your fault or not your fault, the trial comes, it, it hardens your faith, it builds your faith, it strengthens your faith, and as that happens, it increases your perseverance. So the next time you have that trial, you have the faith to meet that trial. And as you meet that trial with that faith and that perseverance, then it just increases your faith more. And as this happens, says James, the end goal is, some of you will love this, perfection. The word mature and complete means perfection. Perfection. Some of you are perfectionists. And there's truth that if you try to make yourself perfect and you're a perfectionist in this world, you're going to drive yourself nuts and people around you. But God's goal for you is perfection. And God promises it will happen. And we have this gift of knowing that nothing that happens in our life is without good effect. Now, sometimes that's hard to believe, but that doesn't mean it's not true. I also want to be clear to say that God uses everything in our life to mold us, to perfect us. Again, I acknowledge that there's different kinds of trials and not all of them. I wouldn't describe all of them as being things that God causes. Now, that's a huge argument. We can talk about that another time. I just want to be clear. If you believe like me that there are trials that God causes and there are also trials that happen that are the evils of other men or this thing called chance that I don't know how to explain because I don't really believe in chance, but I also believe sometimes there's no rational explanation from our end. <laughs> that no matter what the purpose of the trial is, God still uses it for your benefit. There's no trial that happens that God goes, oh man, I can't bring anything good out of that. 
None of them. He may earnestly desire that someone had not been evil and wicked to you. One of my favorite lines about this is Joseph, who is in the Old Testament, his brothers decide to kill him. Do we agree that's evil? Yes. They throw him in a pit. They're going to let him starve to death, which seems like a pretty terrible way to kill somebody. Then they change their mind, but not because they had a change of conscience, but because they realized they could actually make some money. So they decide instead to sell him. So now we're into human trafficking. Do we all agree that human trafficking is evil? Yes. I think it would be fair to say, and in fact, I'm going to show you that I think this is Joseph's mindset at least. I think it would be fair to say that God did not cause either of those things. So they, they throw him in a pit, they change their mind, they sell him, human trafficking, they sell him into slavery. At the end of his life, it's all over, it's getting to the end of his life, he actually is reconciled with his brothers. It's really an amazing story of forgiveness. It's very intriguing, very human. Joseph's very complex. He acts very irrational during a lot of it, and then you realize, so would I. If the people that tried to kill me now showed up on my doorstep, I would be all over the place. Do I forgive them? Do I torture them? He does both. <laughs> he really does but I think he's also testing their forgiveness, but none of that matters. The point I want to make is at the end of this, he looks at his brothers and they are genuinely repentant. And they basically say to him, how can you even forgive us? I mean, like genuinely, sincerely, they're like, we don't deserve this. And interestingly, Joseph says to them, you're right. You don't deserve this. (laughs) He says to them, you intended it for evil. He makes no bones about that. What you did was evil and you intended evil consequences. But then he says this to them, but I can survive it and think about it and survive it and even rejoice because God intended it for good. They intended it for evil. God took it and used it for Joseph's good. There's a verse in the New Testament which says that God works all things for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. What's his purpose? His purpose is, our purpose of delight in him is our sanctification. God takes everything and pushes it towards that end, regardless of the trial. And James says, that makes all the difference. The rest of the world doesn't have this gift. Things happen to them and they have no purpose. They have no understanding. It doesn't seem like it leads anywhere. There's no progression. There's nothing good about it. And unless they can see the concrete good that comes out of it, You know, sometimes people do that. They're like, well, this came out of it. Maybe they wouldn't happen. But let's be honest, they're guessing, right? Maybe it could would have happened. I don't know. They're guessing. I can see it led to this. I don't think it would have. That's fine. We guess. We make ourselves feel better. But James says they don't have the gift we have. We don't have to guess. And even if we don't have concrete evidence, even, and there are so many things in my life where this is true. Let's be honest. There are trials I look at and I say, I don't know what good came out of that. But James says, you know that your faith was strengthened. Your perseverance was increased and God moved you a step closer to perfection. And that's a huge gift. It's a huge gift to know that nothing happens and is just void of meaning. That's a huge gift. That's a treasure that we can rejoice So just to recap, why it's a treasure of the fanatic, I gave you three reasons. There's more. I just pulled three verses tonight. Number one, the fanatic knows that God notices and rewards our good behavior, if you want to put it that way. (laughs) Number two, the fanatic knows that happy endings 
are the deepest reality and that there's more to this life than you can see. And number three, the fanatic knows that God is working through all things on your behalf. And that's why it's a treasure. Because we have these convictions, we can rejoice when the rest of the world has no reason to. But these all require being a little fanatical and a little radical. You see that? I mean, these are the things that if you're not a fanatic, if you're not trusting God, if you're not surrendered to Jesus, if you don't believe in the authority of Scripture, honestly, you say this to someone who doesn't believe any of those things, they're going to say, that's just ridiculous. That's just nonsense. That's just stupid even. But we have this gift. We know this to be true. And that's why the eighth treasure of the Christian fanatic is joy in trials. Most churches believe in the value of small groups and a focused church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.